you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 8. There's a lot of verses that we want to talk through today. They're in the back, well, the, the verse references are in the back of your bulletin. Um, but I would advise you, if you have a Bible to turn, use your phone, whatever is convenient for you, because we're going to be doing quite a bit of page turning this Sunday. Last week, we talked about, and really all this year, we've been talking about what does it mean to intentionally live like Jesus? What we've come to the conclusion of is, hey, we never wake up in the morning and just accidentally act like Jesus. That has to be this conscious effort we make every day to look at who our Savior is, look at how he lived his life, and say, we want to be like him. So all year long, we've been talking through all these different ways through the Gospel of Matthew that we intentionally live like Jesus. So last week, we just made the simple kind of notion, the simple idea that, hey, sometimes intentionally living like Jesus is difficult. This is exactly what he teaches on. And then we asked the question, well, how difficult? And that's the very next story right here in Matthew. Difficult enough that it might very well put you in some scary situations as you follow him. Do you remember any just childhood experiences that you had where you were just downright afraid? Because there's something about those experiences that stick with you, right? When I was like seven or eight years old, my family uh, took a vacation to Panama City Beach, Florida. It was something we did like every year. Um, and the one thing that I always had to do as a kid is I always had to go putt-putt golfing. Now, the way I would putt-putt golf is I would take my ball and I would drop it right in front of the hole and I'd put it in the hole and I'd say, hole in one. And my parents would be like, why did we pay for this? Which is still how I play golf today. I just hit the ball, lose it, and then go drop a ball and put it in and say, hole in one. So... Anyways, nothing much has changed. Anyways, we're out doing putt-putt on this really big course. It's like a, I can't totally remember if it was like a fake volcano, but it's some sort of like man-made mountain structure that you go and you play putt-putt up the mountain and then you play it down the mountain and that's how you do it. So we're kind of about three quarters up the mountain uh, and this lightning storm just comes out of nowhere. Like no warning, nothing. It's just a huge blinding lightning strike. And then like that thunder, maybe you felt some of it last night, that you can like feel shake the ground. Um, and we're like up in the air in Florida. Um, and I freak out. It's like the entire little putt-putt mountain scatters like cockroaches. People are fleeing off the mountain. They're jumping down rocks. They're running to cars. Um, it's pouring rain all of a sudden. And so I remember, you know, we drop our clubs, my mom picks up my two little sisters, my stepdad grabs me by the wrist, and we start running towards the car. And that was just that like instant moment from going from sheer, sheer joy and fun to just chaos. You guys had those experiences before? Like everything just changes like that. And as an eight-year-old, you really don't know how to express those emotions. So what does an eight-year-old start doing? I just start crying. That's the best I know to do. So I'm crying. My sisters are crying. My parents are running us in. And then it strikes me as I'm being drugged by my stepdad to the car that I still have my golf ball in my hand. Now, as a good kind of southern kid that was raised in the church, there were two things I knew. One, lightning is really scary. Two, you don't steal. And if you do, God might just use that lightning to strike you down. I don't know how theological that is. Um, but that was in my brain. And again, as an eight-year-old, you can't really communicate this. You don't know what to say. And so I'm just doing the best I can through, like, sobs, the, the, go the golf ball. And finally, my stepdad rips it out of my hand, and he just chucks it back at the golf course, and he goes, I hope they can find it, get in the car, and we take off. And I will never forget that day for the rest of my life. Do you guys have those types of experiences as a kid? There's something about that just kind of sudden emotional chaos of fear that we experience, uh, and that of all of the negative emotions, it might really be one of the worst, 
because it almost always carries with you in your memory. In fact, there's been a lot of psychological studies that have been done about the influential emotions of fear and how it's correlated to memory. And so even with other like negative emotions like anger or irritation or even hurt to some extent, like yes, it, it stings, it hurts, uh, but your brain tends to be really good about helping ease that over time, kind of repair things back together. So you don't always remember how angry you got. You don't always remember how irritated you were. You don't necessarily remember that breakup. You don't, your brain's just pretty good at repairing that. But looking psychologically, your brain's really not that great at repairing fear. That fear tends to have this notion that it sticks with you. This is called uh, emotional memory enhancement in the uh, psychology world. So my wife, she still remembers when she was little at her grandparents' house, and she wasn't supposed to be out of bed, but she snuck out of bed and stood in the background without her parents noticing while they watched Jaws, and she still cannot see a picture of a shark without, like, wincing. Just telling you, show her, don't show her a picture of a shark. She will get so mad at me. Um, or, or a far more, like, somber, real note than just kind of silliness. If any of you are old enough in here, you very well remember where you were 22 years ago tomorrow. Um, that's an event that you're not going to forget because if you watched on national television planes flying into towers and the fear just sink into your heart of what's just happened, those are things you don't forget. Like, like this fear emotion has the ability to lock into your mind and it's really a universal human experience. And, and here's the problem with that. As real and as universal as fear is, it, it actually seems to make us less human and not more human. And at this point, I'm not talking about just like silly little storms while you're putt-putting. I'm talking about those deep-seated realities that a lot of us set on that we don't tell other people about, but we still know because we can still remember. And the point is, those who have dealt with that level of traumatic fear, it usually limits how you can interact with others. It's proven to limit cognitive prowess, uh, especially among children. Uh, it's why we almost exclusively recognize fear as a negative thing. I mean, you got your weirdos that will like pay to go to haunted houses. But other than that, most of us know that fear is not something we really enjoy uh, to experience. So tons of time and study and research has gone into this trying to decipher how do we alleviate fear and how do we overcome that in our life, understanding that it doesn't help us in our relationship to one another and our jobs and things like that. So then the question is, does the Bible give us something to help us navigate that ever-present reality of this really just terrifying, fallen world? And I think that's what Matthew 8 is really driving home as we start off in verse 23. And he got into the boat, and, disciples, uh, and his, his disciples followed him. So Jesus has been healing people through Capernaum. Uh, he gets kind of tired, it seems, so he gets in the boat getting ready to sail to the other side of the, of the sea. And so his disciples follow with him. And suddenly a violent storm arose on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But Jesus kept sleeping. So the disciples came and they woke him up saying, Lord, save us, we're going to die. And he said to them, why are you afraid, you of little faith? And he got up, he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men were amazed, and they asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the seas obey him. Now, here's what I love about Matthew. We've been highlighting this all through our study of Matthew. 
Um, Matthew is so good at giving you what you need to know on the surface level. So surface level, reading this story, is Jesus powerful or is Jesus weak? You could answer that question. It's pretty easy, right? He's powerful. I don't know how many of you have ever tried to speak to the storm last night and say, stop. Doesn't denort for you. So Jesus is powerful. That's a surface level reading. It is the correct reading of Matthew chapter 8. In fact, he's so powerful that we could trust in him and put our faith in him, and that seems to alleviate our fears. Is that a simple biblical reading of this? Well, Jesus himself seems to think so as he naps in the middle of this storm. But as with everything else that Matthew has done, there's a clear surface-level conclusion that is often right and good to come to, but there's a lot more underneath that surface. Jesus is powerful, he's authoritative over nature, and he's able to protect us so that we should place our faith in him. So we could take that right now, we could come to just this simple single point that is intentionally living like Jesus means not fearing. There you go, you got the point. We could just pack up and go home, but I'm not gonna let you do that because we got a lot more that's going on beside, behind the scenes here that I want you to look through. So note a couple key phrases in this passage that I just want you to hold on to. And as you hold on to these key phrases, we're then gonna go back and trace through a couple key scriptures in the Old Testament. Number one, focus up on this phrase that just talks about violent seas and the swamping waves. It's gonna be key to hold on to. Number two, the question the disciples ask or the statement they make that we are going to die, that will come back up. Jesus' response of why are you afraid this concept of fear is a huge point of it. And then Jesus rebuking the water. Those four key things. And then at the end, I want to focus on this final question they ask of what kind of man is this? And we're going to do this looking through Genesis 1, Exodus 14 and 15, Psalm 104 to 106, or Psalm 104 and 106, Isaiah 51. Whew. It's been a while since I've done just a full biblical like nerd out with you. So this is what we get to do today. If that's not your forte, give me 15, 20 minutes. I'll tune you back in at the end. But I'm, I promise you, in order to understand Matthew, you need to understand this. Jump in your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 1. Page 1 of your Bible. Genesis chapter 1 opens up with the simple phrase that we usually know very well. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And often what we do with Genesis 1 is, is we're really quick to then just jump down to how. We talk about day one, day two, day three, and so on and so forth. But when we do that, we miss what the author and what the Hebrews want us to understand from Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. So that's what I want to highlight for you as we begin. It says this. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Now, this has just told you an amazing story. It's given you a crazy claim about what the Jewish people believe about their God, Yahweh. But likeliness is you missed it because you don't know Hebrew. And I don't really either, but I know a couple words to at least clue you in, so let, let's get into that. Now, this begins with this concept of an uncreated state. Now, when we think in our modern kind of scientific West world, and we try to get our minds around what was... What was existence like before existence existed? We usually just like burn our brains out and don't know what to do from there. But generally kind of what we come to is this point of like black blank slate. But a black blank slate is something. Do you understand what I mean? Like imagine nothing and good luck doing it. Now here's the problem. That's not how an ancient Near Easterner would have thought. That if you would have went to them and asked them what existed before existence, what, what was there, they would not tell you some form of black blank slate. They would have taken you to some sort of chaos waters, 
Some dark, abysmal waters would be what their brains went to. Which this matches with what the Bible talks about. Because for the ancient Near Easterns, in every other cosmology, and other cultures' cosmology story, this is what it says. So Genesis 1, verse 2, Now the earth was formless and void, and darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. So the first kind of key word there is that word watery depths. In Hebrew, it's the word tahom. In another kind of translation you can give, your Bible might say the deep waters, the dark waters, the, the depths in itself. I like just kind of the, it's more of an interpretation and translation, but I like the idea of the chaos waters. Because if any of you have stood uh, outside at night facing the ocean, or you've been on a cruise ship or a boat, and you look and you see these giant waves, there's something unsettling about that, right? Like, just a little bit chaotic in your soul. And I think that's the imagery that this is taking us back to, the deep, abysmal depths, the tahom, the chaos waters. Now, in other religions at that time, usually what they would do is they would have this tahom. They had their own language for it, but for the sake of Hebrew language, we'll use the word tahom. And usually in their story, the, their god or some form of their god would emerge outside of that tahom just as the chaos waters was itself. So it would come out of the chaos waters. This doesn't make sense. Let me give you a couple just summaries of, one, the Babylonian Sumerian, or the Babylonian cosmology story. Summary goes like this. Um, It's a quote from a scholar on this. He says, The story, one of the oldest in the world, concerns the birth of the gods and the creation of the universe and human beings. In the beginning, there was only undifferentiated waters swirling in chaos. And out of this swirl, the waters divided into sweet, fresh water, known as the god Apsu, and the salty, bitter water, known as the goddess Tiamat. This is what Babylonians believe, if you were to ask them what their Genesis 1 said. Or the Egyptian cosmology story. Here's another one. In Egyptian mythology, the universe emerged from a vast cosmic ocean of nothingness. For countless eons, the creator sun god Atum had drifted asleep in this primordial sea, And eventually the creator God awoke and willed a small island to emerge from out of the cosmic sea. Here's what I need you to see. I know we're we're in the weeds right now, but just note this with me. In every other religion at the time, you have this abysmal chaos water, and there's some God that is a byproduct of that chaos water that then emerges out of the chaos water. But at the very second sentence of the Hebrew creation narrative, the Hebrews say, where does Yahweh come from? Not from outside of the waters. No, he comes over and hovers over the top of the waters. That's the next phrase. That in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the world was formless and void. And darkness covered the surface of the watery depths and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface. Now, again, just for your note, that word spirit's another key word. It's the Hebrew word ruach. You gotta really kind of clear your throat at the end. Ruach, that's good Hebrew. Uh, so Hebrew word ruach, and it can mean spirit, it can mean wind, or it can mean breath. All three of those words are viable translations of this word. And it goes on, and the Spirit of God hovered over, and then it just says the word waters. That's really interesting, because this is a different Hebrew word than the word tahom. In fact, the word in Hebrew here is mayim, or chamayim, if you want to put the waters, And it's the way Hebrews would talk about still water. So in Psalm 23, uh, for he leads me beside Chamayim. Do you see what Genesis 1 is conveying to you? That there is chaotic, abysmal waters, 
But when the power and presence of God comes upon these waters, it turns the Tahom into Chemayim. It takes the chaos waters and turns them to calm waters. This is what the very presence of God does. So right here from sentence two, the Bible has told you a story involving deep chaos waters, raging, the Spirit of God coming to rest on that water, calming that water to order, getting it ready for creation. So hold on to that for me and make your way to Exodus 14, and I will catch up with you there as I fill in a little bit of the blanks. God begins to order the calm waters. He makes way for life. He creates everything, and at the pinnacle of this creation is humanity. God looks at creation. He looks at this image, and he says that it is very good, that it is perfect, but it doesn't stay that way. If you know the story, uh, in the dignity granted to humanity by God, Adam and Eve rebel. They go against the will of God. The chaos re-emerges as sin corrupts not only mankind, but all of creation itself. But God's not content to leave mankind or creation in that state. Instead, he pursues after humanity, eventually calling out this guy that he's going to change his name from Abram to Abraham. He makes a promise to Abraham that he's going to turn him into a great nation that's going to bless the world, that's going to return the world to this very good state of perfection. But by the time we come to Exodus, Abraham's genealogy has begun to grow out. His family has now turned into a nation, but that nation is enslaved. It's not the way the story has supposed to go as they've fallen enslaved to Egypt. Now, if you know that story, God enacts another plan to rescue his people. He raises up a rescuer. He implements these 10 plagues to set the Israelites free. And in this final plague, what God does is he demands every Hebrew household slaughter a spotless lamb. That they're going to eat that lamb as a meal, and they're going to spread that lamb's blood over their doorstep. And over their door that night, when, when death comes, death would pass over that house. So that symbolically, that lamb died in place of the firstborn son. But for every house that didn't have the blood of the lamb, death would enter and take the life of the firstborn. This implements the very first uh, initiating holiday that's called Passover, which is still a holiday celebrated now. It is the oldest standing holiday in like human history, Passover, still being celebrated today by many Jewish communities across the world. And so you have to understand that for us, like it's like Christmas. Not exactly, but it kind of matches that idea so that, you know, I don't mean to say this in any sort of rudeness, but like even Christians that aren't like good Christians that don't come to church, they don't know the story that well, they at least know the story of Christmas, right? Like, they, they at least know that much of the story because that's the time mom tells you that you have to go to church even if you don't want to. So Christmas, in the same way with the Jewish person, even if you were like a bad Jew, which this was still doesn't hold up exactly, they would have known this story. Because this is the story of how the Israelites were rescued. It was a story that they celebrated every single year. They would enact, reenact the meal. They would tell the story for the next week of this story right here. Of how God rescues them from Pharaoh and his army as they're backed up to the Red Sea. So in Exodus 14, it's telling this story. They've been rescued out. Pharaoh's let them go, but they get to the Red Sea. And with their backs to the Red Sea, they look, and Pharaoh's charging back after them. 14, verse 10. Um, I'm in verse 13. That was chapter 13. 14, verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians coming after them. And the Israelites were terrified. There's that phrasing of fear. 
and they cried out to the Lord for help, they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? So they face that feeling of fear. It sets in as they start to freak out. So Moses responds, verse 13, but Moses told the people, do not be afraid, stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You must be quiet. Then jump to verse 21. Then Moses stretched his hand out over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back with a powerful east wind and all that night and turned the sea into dry land so that the sea or so that the waters were divided. So God divides the sea with a mighty east wind. You want to take a stab on what that Hebrew word for wind is. Ruach? Do you remember? Where God separated the waters back in Genesis 1, the wind comes back, the Spirit of God comes back, and separates the chmayim. So you might say, well, Philip, what's going on with the whole concept of home and stuff here? I don't, I don't see that. Well, hold tight, jump over just one more chapter as they reflect on this in poetry and worship. Chapter 15, verse 8. As they look back, they say, the water's heaped up at the blast from your nostrils. What does that sound like? Breath from God? It's not the word ruach, but it's absolutely breath from God that's holding these waters back. The current stood firm like a dam. The watery depths congealed in the heart of the sea. There's your word, home. God comes back. His breath once again controls the home, separating it into Hamayim so that the Israelites can walk through it on dry ground. Come on, it's too clear. Exodus is retelling the creation story. It's exactly what's happening here as God brings Israel out and initiates his plan. Once again, we find that the one creator God, who's very present, controls the chaotic depth, powerful enough again to separate the water out, just as he did in Genesis 1, for the sake of preserving life, has now enabled the return of Tahom to cover those that threaten Israel, and thereby saving his people. This becomes a formative story in the Israelite narrative, which they tell at Passover every single year, which then marks this as a way for them to imagine how God responds to them when they need help. So when you get to worship psalms and the things that they would write in the psalms, what story do you think they reflect on to remember God's vast power? I'll show you. Psalm 104. Psalm 104 begins, My soul, bless the Lord. Lord, my God, you are very great. You're clothed with majesty and splendor. But then when you get down to verse 5, he says this, He, God, established the earth on its foundations. It will never be shaken. You covered it with the deep, the tahom, as if it were a garment. And the mayim stood above the mountains. And then at your, notice the key word, rebuke, the waters, the Mayim, fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. Mountains rose and valleys sank to the place that you established for them. You set a boundary that they cannot cross, and they will never cover the earth again. Do you see what this psalmist is doing? He's reflecting on Genesis 1, and he's saying, God, I know you're powerful because I know back above at the start of creation, when there was chaos waters covering even the mountains, you spoke and those waters retreated. God, Yahweh, it is your word that turns chaos into order. God, that is your identity. If that's not enough, jump over two chapters to Psalm 106. 
I know we're going fast, but I just want to highlight a couple of these. Psalm 106 begins, Hallelujah, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his faithful love endures forever. And then it reflects not on the creation story this time, but the Exodus story. Verse 6, both we and our fathers have sinned. We've done wrong and we've acted wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not grasp the significance of your wondrous works or remember your many acts of faithful love. Instead, they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. And yet he, God, saved them for his name's sake to make his power known. He, again, rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up. He led them through the to home. The depths, the chaos water, as through a desert. He saved them from the power of the adversary. He redeemed them from the power of the enemy. This is a way that the Hebrews reflect on God's provision in their own life. Take it all the way over to verse 47 in this psalm. Save us, Lord our God, and gather us from the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and rejoice in your praise. When they use this term, save us, what are they envisioning? They're envisioning a God that steps into chaos waters and his mere presence and power calms it and then he orders it and saves them. It's a theme that's been told over and over and over again in the Old Testament. If God had rescued Israel through the, over the Tahome in Exodus, he can do it again. But if you know the story, disaster strikes again because Israel falls into rebellion and they're exiled into Babylon. So Isaiah, the, the prophet who has wrote to them warning, hey, if you don't shape up Israel, you're going to end up in exile, is now writing to them post-exile, and he's writing to try to encourage them. And we get to Isaiah 51, and what story do you think Isaiah is going to use to talk to them about God's means of salvation? Oh, come on, right? God's power over the Tahom to turn it into Mayim and rescue them out. Isaiah 51. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut, to the quarry from which you were dug, Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave birth to you. When I called him, he was the only one. I blessed him and made him many. Remember all the way back to Genesis, the promise I made. For the Lord will comfort Zion, verse 3. He will comfort her in her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden. God's going to restore them back to that stature of very good in Genesis 1 and 2. And her desert, like the garden of the Lord, joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and melodious song. This is Isaiah saying, God is going to restore. It is coming. And how does he prove that? What's the reliable proof of the evidence? Verse uh, 10. He says, wasn't it you, Yahweh, who dried up the sea, the waters of the Tahome? who made a seabed into a road and for the, for the redeemed to pass over. And the redeemed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing and crowned with unending joy. Joy and gladness will overtake them. Sorrow and sigh will flee. I, I am the one who comforts you. Who are you that you should fear humans who die or a son of man who's given up like grass? But you have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. You are in constant dread all day long because the fury of the oppressor who has sent himself to destroy. But where is the fury? Verse 14, the prisoner is soon to be set free. 
he will not die and go to the pit. His food will not be lacking. All of this to say, Isaiah looks back and he says, hey, I know things seem bleak. I know things seem chaotic. But I also know Yahweh, whose very presence and power turns chaos waters to Mayim, to calm waters, and makes a way for people to pass through. And we can trust that he will restore. How you doing? This concludes our tour of the Old Testament. We can now jump back to Matthew. Jesus comes onto the scene. His followers uh, begin to follow him, and they, they know his role of some sort of messianic. There, there's something different about this guy. But here in Matthew 8, we get this story that just shatters their categories. They never saw Jesus in this light until this moment. Because they know these stories we just read. Like any good Jewish person, they celebrate Passover every single year. They know this from the insides of their heart. God calming the Tahom into Hamayim through his Ruach to rescue his people, to bring life. It's over and over again. But that's Yahweh, right? That is an attribute that is only accredited to the one creator God of the earth and of all creation. And here in this boat, while it's storming, there's just a man asleep down there. Now, you and I both know Jesus isn't just a man, but you got to understand, for them, he's still 100% man. For us, he's still 100% man. And so the storm comes. The dark, chaotic depths to Tahome rears its ugly head. Now, of course, Matthew doesn't use the word Tahome. He's writing in Greek at this point. It's, not a, it's a Hebrew word. But the point is so clearly there. That the violent storm in the sea, the swamping waves over the boat, do you see Tahom at play in this? Dark chaos waters? And they respond much like the Israelites do in Exodus 14. They freak out in fear. They wake Jesus up. Rescue us. We're going to die. It's a little bit implied, but you can notice the, Jesus, we gave our lives to follow you, and you just drag us out here in a boat to kill us? God, we're your people, and you just pull us out of Egypt to kill us? And Jesus responds, echoing the voice of Isaiah. What are you afraid of? What have you to fear? And then he, in the exact same words the psalmist uses, rebukes the water. And what happens? The exact same thing that happened in Genesis 1. The exact same thing that happens in Exodus 14. At Jesus' voice, the chaos waters turn to chamayim. They turn to peace. The waters and the wind stop. And the disciples clap and they say, again, Jesus, again, do the trick again. That was amazing. No, they don't. The disciples react very strangely to this because they're freaked out. Because what Jesus just did was something reserved only for Yahweh. It was something only God could do, and Jesus, a man, just did it with that level of authority. It blows their categories. The response is not one of celebration. It's one of awe and trembling as they begin to piece together the reality of what's happening. You see, Matthew could have written out like a 21st century theologian, and thus Jesus proved that he was fully God and fully man. But Matthew is so much more clever than that. So instead, he poses you a question through the disciples, that they watch this happen, and then their response is to look at Jesus and say, what kind of man is this, that even the winds and the seas obey him? 
So far, we've seen compassionate uh, Jesus, we've seen teacher Jesus, we've seen merciful Jesus, but now the reality sets in that it's something that is absolutely beyond what they could have even fathomed. That there's more to be said about who this Jesus is. Now that question, what type of man is this, that's going to get answered next week through a demon. So there you go. We'll talk about that next week. But for now, there's some inferences that we can make. One, Jesus is a man with the very same authority and attributes only attributed to Yahweh, to the God of Israel, meaning that he is God come in flesh to confront and conquer chaos and evil and sin. That's exactly what he comes to do. He's going to go on in that tension between Jesus and sin and chaos and evil. It's going to mount and it's going to grow to the ultimate clash between Jesus and evil itself where Jesus again conquers through a way you never would have expected. Because he actually conquers by submitting himself to evil and sin and chaos, and he dies, and he goes into the grave, but you got to realize that's, that's the, the home. He goes into the place of chaos waters, the place that the dead end up, where they never return again, but Jesus walks directly into that grave, well, really, he dies and is buried in that grave, and then three days later, he emerges victorious. The ultimate call that Jesus will not allow evil to have the last word. There's so much that can be said about that. There's so much that can be talked about. I don't have that much time, so let me just close here. Intentionally living like Jesus means not fearing. Every person in this room knows the feeling of chaos. We know that feeling that you're up playing putt-putt and the lightning bolt strikes and you just freak out and start crying and running because we don't know how to respond. But we know it far deeper than that. I don't know what to home is going on in your life right now. I don't know the depths of chaos that's surrounding you, how it feels like you may be drowning in all of that. I do know that if you don't feel that way, turn on the news for about five minutes and you can get to feeling that way pretty quickly. It's not hard to come to that conclusion. And Jesus looks at all of that and he says, even in the midst of it, why would you fear? The implication is, hey, if I'm with you, it doesn't threaten you. Now, you might experience it, and it might be hard. Jesus has just said following him is going to be hard. I'm not telling you, if you believe in Jesus, he'll just calm the storms of your life and you won't have any problems anymore. That's not true. That's a lie. But I am telling you, When you trust in Jesus as your Savior, even the deepest chaos waters do not threaten your life. Whatever it is you're facing, it does not pose a threat to Jesus. In fact, there's so many other psalms about this that I didn't go into, but one of the psalms talks about how even those things I'm afraid of, those things fear God. The chaos waters that you think threaten you, that thing actually fears God. Hence, its willingness to obey him when he speaks. So what do we have to be afraid of? What do we have to worry about? Philip, you don't understand my financial situation. I don't know how I'm going to eat tomorrow. I don't. But I know who loves you more than any of that and who is in control of it. 
This is what God is calling us to as we follow him as a church. This is what it means as we live like Jesus, that we as First Baptists, we don't go into panic mode. We don't start freaking out. We don't start saying, everything's going bad. We, gotta... we just come in and we say, hey, even in the Tahomes, we know the very presence and power of God calms it, and he makes a way. So we trust and we rest. So maybe that's what you need to do this morning. Just come to God and trust and rest. Maybe you've never known this story and it's just, and you just want to come open up that door a little bit more. I would love to talk with you about that or about giving your life to Jesus to know what it's like to follow the God made flesh himself to die for your sins and then to have hope in the resurrection that our God has conquered chaos and evil and death and sin. And that matters for your life as well. Whatever it is, this is your time to think through what does it mean to follow God that provides a way to save us. Father God, thank you for this text. Thank you for the depths of how much bigger this is than what any of us could know. God, I, help, I pray that you would help us to just comprehend what it means to serve and love a God that conquers evil and chaos. And so even when there's swarming chaos in our lives right now, that you would let us look from the boat and say, yes, but we know the one who calms it is with us. And God, I do ask that you would calm storms. We, we ask for that. We don't want to experience it. But God, we trust that even when the chaos remains, that you are still stronger and there is a day coming when restoration will come, when you will make a way once and for all and destroy evil. God, we long for that day, but let us trust you in the meantime. It's in Jesus' name we pray.